My guest on this episode of Africa State of Mind is someone who, in my opinion, is the very definition of what this podcast is all about. Born in Joss, Nigeria, and according to my friends from Nigeria, is the only place that has cold weather, grapes, strawberries, and Irish potatoes. He came from a very, um, from a pretty good background and lived a life of privilege. And this all changed at the age of 12 due to political threats against his family and they were forced to seek refuge in the UK. It's been hard for his family to settle in the UK with the immigrant status that had to be renewed every three years at about 900 pounds each time just as Inua settled in and got used to being told by the by the Caribbean kids to stop acting white in inverted commas due to papers being lost the family was sent off to Ireland in Ireland this is where he really became aware of his race still like all great artists he's since used all of these experiences to create his world-renowned pieces of art he's quoted as saying poetry saved my life it was the cheapest way to be free it's his love for poetry that shaped his career a playwright, performer, who has written for the Royal Shakespeare Company, Royal National Theatre and BBC. He was nominated for Writers Guild Award for his play, Barbershop Chronicles. He also won a Human Rights Award for his one-man show, An Evening with an Immigrant. He's been invited to Buckingham Palace, Wolverine, Superman and um, Spider-Man and Idris Elba have all watched his play. While most people have only dreamed of speaking at TED Talks, he's done about three or more, if I'm not mistaken. As though that wasn't enough, he's an author, a graphic designer, and a person crazy enough to take an experience of a walk in the middle of the night and convince other people from various cities to do the same thing for fun. <laughs> Enter the Midnight Run Project. Of course, I'm talking about none other than the amazing, as you can see, I'm even running out of like breath, Inua Elms. Welcome to Africa State of Mind. How was that intro? How did I do? One to ten. Oh my God. Wow, that was pretty, pretty, um, what's the word? Um brilliant and coherent and um, encyclopedic. That's the word I'm looking for. You know, really good. I was expecting something more poetic, more poetic but it's okay. I'll, I'll live with that. <laughs> <laughs> it's too early for poetry. Yeah, but let's get into the question that I think is burning in everybody's minds from that intro. How is it that, explain to us exactly how Spider-Man, Wolverine and Idris Elba all ended up at your show? Because I know that that's the most important question today. <laughs> Well, um, I think all three of them just happened to be in London. Um, um, Andrew Garfield was performing a play called Angels in America. Um, Idris Elbae, well, he's a Londoner, so he was, and he's an African. Mm. And um, um, Hugh Jackman was also in London doing something. So they just heard about my play and all came and all loved it and stayed to meet the cast afterwards and to talk to them. I was on tour elsewhere with my show, so I failed to meet these literal superheroes. Um, but yeah, they just happened to be there, just came through. Now, let's also talk about um, you. Uh, you know, I think I read a quote about how you say you come from a list of troublemakers. Talk to us about your family in the context of um, just, you know, the involvement that, that your family's been, that your family has had in Nigeria politically. Well, it wasn't so much political. Well, maybe in a small way. But I, I don't know what happened. All I know is my father was a Muslim. Um, he went to Mecca for the pilgrimage. 
um, when he was there, saw some things he wasn't too pleased with and returned to Nigeria saying he was reconsidering his faith. Then um, some people got really angry about that and made our lives difficult. Um, I don't know who they are, where they were, if they were in, indeed there was a political faction, if it was a religious faction, we don't know. All we know is um, we had to get the hell out of there. And that's what happened. It's kind of crazy how um, religion plays such a huge role, I think, globally when it comes to politics and just the way people live and are allowed to live. Um, you know, we even see well, that. The thing is, in it's even a little more complicated because it's how the British tried to disseminate power over mm. the vast land that is Nigeria. Mm. Um, it was classic divide and conquer um, sort of um, mentality, um, which as South Africans, you guys have experienced an element of. And when they were leaving Nigeria, they left the northerners, the house of people, my people, mm. more or less in charge, which fostered deep ethnic um, um, distrust, which still exists in Nigeria mm. today. Mm. And the, North, the northern Nigerians were initially, you know, they were influenced by North African culture, i.e. Islam. Mm. And all of that just heightened the division between the Muslim community and the Christian community in Nigeria. And initially they tried as much as possible just to just to do the best for the situation after the British had gone but um, money got involved and that whole changed everything especially when oil power came from the south therefore the Muslims distrusted the southerners because they had the money and they had the stronger western influence and it just created this I don't know this perfect um, bomb mm. which has exploded arguably yeah sure yeah. that's quite hectic because it also puts in context you know um, a lot of what has what has been happening more recently um, in the northern parts um, of, Ni- of Nigeria as well with regards to you know some of the bombings and a lot of the different things that have been going on and just the division because um, one thing that does strike me is that when I'm in Nigeria there's a definite division at times from different regions and different people you know so that, that does put it um, quite a bit in context now let's move over to this whole situation around xenophobia the rise of national and just all this uncertainty and fear that, you know, we see all around the world. And of course, sadly, you know, migrants and immigrants alike tend to, in the different regions, take, you know, be the ones who are blamed, you know, for what is going on in certain countries, you know. For you as an immigrant, what is the biggest misconception um, that people have about living as an immigrant in the United Kingdom coming from Africa? And what are some of the things that you deal with um, on a regular or have dealt with? I think the biggest misconception is the idea that um, immigrants have nothing to contribute, are poorly educated, um, and um, just arrive with desperation and hunger and um, just throw themselves um, you know, at the mercy of the British sort of larger community mm-hmm. and that we just get a whole bunch of free stuff from houses to just endless amounts of money and we somehow scam the benefit system. Yeah. All of that is incredibly inaccurate mm. because for most of the people who migrate across South Africa, um, sorry, across the African continent in order mm. to get to this country, some of them have wealthy families who are paying for that trip. Mm. Um, some of them, a lot, are extremely educated. Like if you've ever sat in a London cab, 90% of the time, the driver is from um, um, I don't know, another country, and they left the country with like degrees in medicine. Some of them are full doctors, you know, and um, just didn't happen to run into bad situations. It's not that they are here, but because of the way the system is here, they can't practice 
what they are qualified in. Yeah. Mm. So that that misconception is there. And I think on a day-to-day basis, what I experienced um, in London is this bubble is extremely cosmopolitan, extremely diverse. Um, Therefore, I I, I face it less here. When I leave the country, uh, when I leave London, the question that I'm always posed is, where am I from? Regardless of how eloquently spoken I am or whatever, mm-hmm. the question is I'm always othered and never from here. Mm-hmm. And that's one of the things that I face, always being pushed out of the communities that I'm in just by that othering question over and over again. And this is besides the point of race. This is just on a mental um, sort of um, literary level. I feel that. Race is a whole other issue. Visually, where I dress, where I look, that's other conversations. Yeah, and I have actually seen visually you really are proud of your Nigerian culture. So it's like you tend to bring it into a lot of what it is that you do in terms of the way that you dress. Now, um, let's talk a bit about the Human Rights Award. I know that you were really proud of winning that award um, for, I think, the, the place called A Night with an Immigrant. Talk to us about this award and why you think that conversation in this moment in history is so important. Um, you know, the conversation that, that's been stirred around with regards to your play. I've always been a champion of, of human rights as a concept. There are problems with it. Some argue that it's a little bit too focused on the individual as opposed to the collective, especially when we are from countries that, that champion the collective. Mm-hmm. You know, um, So I have problems with it, but on the whole, I see what it does. It's just a, a set of statements which protect um, the individual against the state. Mm. which always champion freedoms versus the architecture of community and government and power, which can crush those freedoms. So when I was touring and visited immigrant, I was talking about the human rights law, which is one of the sort of um, one of the points or one of the branches of that affect immigration law. And it was on the basis of that my family had been able to continue to stay in this country. So I was just talking about this as part of the show. And not knowing that I was being watched by Liberty, who are a human rights um, um, organization. Mm. And their job, or one of the things they're doing, is to make sure human rights stays part of the British judicial system, mm. which is being threatened by the withdrawal from the European Union here. So so when I was nominated for the award, I was thinking, okay, this is really cool, but I'm not going to win this. Um, the people in my category um, were, was a war photographer who had mm. been severely maimed by his practice. He had sure. two or three of his limbs completely blown off and yet he was out there straight back in Afghanistan shooting. I can't even compute that. Yeah. And then there was a community who did a whole project with technology to get young and old people speaking and talking together. This is a big thing here in London, the generation of the guys um, can be massive. Um, right across the UK. So these are the people that I was um, sort of against in that category. And I was just happy for any of them to be able to be to be there. When my, when, I, when my name went out, my jaw just blocked. Um, I looked at my girlfriend and she assumed that I wasn't going to be either. So she was surprised. My mother was in tears. It was all, all kind of crazy, high-running emotions. Um, so, yeah, it meant, it meant a lot to me. And what was the second part of your question? Um, just basically with regards to the, how important you think it is at this time in history, you know, when we look at the way that um, immigrants are being treated, you know, all the xenophobia that's rising up and just the commentary, um, you know, by world leaders in inverted commas. 
like like it's like viscerally important because the thing is migration is the oldest human habit sometimes we forget that that mm-hmm. our earliest ancestors left africa is why the world is populated mm-hmm. and migration is so key to the human psyche that we did this off planet we literally migrated to the moon like that's just how much mm-hmm. is part of the human dna and the fact that it's become this issue now is 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 just pathetic like we are better than this as earthlings we we've, we've done great like it's just pathetic mm. so whenever um this issue comes up one of the one of the standpoints sort of the argument point that has been philosophically philosophically debated and and you know made foolproof is the human rights charter mm. it explains this you know and just to remind other communities individuals who are right wing that we are talking about humans here these aren't yeah. just numbers these aren't just like you know codes in a computer this is a migrant yeah. problem this these is are a people problem. Yeah. these are people mm. and i think always going to that and return to that point with this set of rules um I, i think is important it just takes away sometimes the emotional um arguments which can be pushed to the side if if they do that they say okay, well here's the human rights charter this is what it says mm-hmm. you know think about people moving migrating in this context yeah. and sometimes i have problems with the word migrant it sounds too much like rat too much like cockroach too much like too too much like miserly all of these things are conjured in that word which makes it feel even more negative mm-hmm. and more problematic when in actuality we're just talking about people migrating mm-hmm. moving that is it yeah sure and yeah. now you know and i i mean I think, sorry, I'm just like, you know, gathering in my mind a lot of the things that you said and even just the the way that when we think of the word migrant, it really does have this like really, you know, like you say, like this really dirty feel around it, you know, which stirs yeah. up a lot of other negativity. And, you know, yeah, we I just think as humans, we definitely need to do better, you know. And, and I think one of the sad things also just to add in is that I do feel that for the lack of leadership that we have globally, the quickest way that a leader can kind of defend themselves is by, blaming uh you know a minority community or blaming people who are like in inverted commas quote unquote the other and so for me it also just shows in countries where you see a rise it just shows that there is a you know in terms of leaders that you don't have leaders who actually know what they're doing they need to find somebody yeah. to blame instead of finding a solution to a problem more than anything else yeah yeah absolutely right yeah Now now in the TED talk that you did this is one of my favorite TED talks that you did you spoke about your very cute um nephew Malachi and I think the quote was yeah. to pluck a flower and to clench a fist now as a Nigerian um you know where masculinity is a huge thing when you go to Nigeria every Niger man I beg is like I'm a man you know <laughs> you know and and obviously you know looking at your father and I'm sure that you know you learned a lot with regards to what it means to be a Nigerian man compare for me um you know what the difference is in terms of what how masculinity is is defined in Nigeria and in the United Kingdom. Um I think Nigeria Nigerian masculinity is sort of in sort of the classic unproblematic way in which we view masculinity IE have to be the breadwinner have to be incomparable in you know in the bedroom you have to be just you know you just never question that you just have to be tough have to be strong have to make x amount of money have to um you know just keep your emotions locked in classic way mm. um which which is you know the world over really mm. but here in the UK particularly in London um we are seeing all of those traditional sort of conceptions um just change 
by women making um, more and more money, sometimes more in a, in a typical relationship in a household, um, by men realizing that um, some women require emotional connection in relationship, mm. not just financial security, mm. um, by um, poverty spreading, therefore the lack or the perception of the lack of, um, um, I guess, is, um, you know, things like high cars and trainers mm. contributes to um, a feeling of inadequacy, which contributes to depression, which men feel in a way that women do not because they feel they have to provide this for themselves. And this is one of the ways that women are attracted to them. So men are becoming to realize that that isn't the case anymore. Mm. And it's creating this displacement sort of um, um, thing where they're not quite sure what to do next or how to appear attractive or successful or secure when those things aren't wanted from them necessarily. So it's creating this massive problem in terms of masculinity, in terms of mental health here. So in, in the UK, we swing from one extreme to another, whereas largely in Nigeria, we're still stuck to the traditional, you know, sort of settings here. We are not, and we've flung, we've sometimes swung to the opposite, and we're not quite sure how to handle that. Mm, sure. And now, just in, in drawing comparisons, for um, for your play, Chronicles of a Barbershop, you traveled to Ghana, SA, Uganda, Nigeria, the United Kingdom. Um, from the conversations that were had by the men in the different barbershops, you know, as you were doing your research, what is the main similarity, you know, if you can almost generalize it, and then the main difference from region to region with regards to how masculinity is defined? Boy, that's a big question. Um, um, I think the main conversation strand to everywhere was uh, football. Um, talking a lot about soccer, um, and within that, they talked about um, um, sort of the idea of community, the idea of tribes within footballing communities. Um, and um, I don't know what else, but it kind of changed from country to country. Mm-hmm. So the conversations I had in South Africa, I arrived in South Africa the weekend Nelson Mandela had died. Oh, so wow. it was a lot about politics, about fatherhood, about belonging, mm-hmm. um, about community. Um, when I was in Kenya, it was about homosexuality and about mm-hmm. the dowry system randomly. When I was in Ghana, it was almost entirely about fatherhood and family. Mm-hmm. Um, when I was in Nigeria, it was a lot about the legacy of barbering, but also a lot about money. Mm. Um, when I was in Uganda, sorry, Uganda was about homosexuality. Yeah. Kenya was mostly about the rise of ch- the ch- Chinese sort of financial power globally. And it was also about infidelity. And curiously enough, about Western education and how that um, and its influence in African schools particularly in Kenyan schools, but how um, Eurocentric it was rather than Afrocentric mm. and the problems with that because mm. inbuilt in that is an inferiority complex which you teach to our kids where we teach them that um, a European man discovered Mount Kenya as though Kenyans yeah. hadn't been climbing that thing for centuries, you know. Yeah. So sure. that was the conversation there. And in the UK, um, yeah, we just had all of those conversations reflected here because of how cosmopolitan London is. Mm. So, yeah. And just... I have two more questions before I let you go. The first one is, um, if like in certain barbershops, you know, um, there are cases, I think very rare cases, where there's a woman who's the actual barber. <laughs> Did you find this at all? And would that change the dynamics of the conversation? Um, I didn't find it at all. Yeah. Um, no. I mean, there were some places where it's a little dodgy. 
particularly in San Diego, there's a woman who's saying that all she did was give the guys massages and barber shops. Huh? Um, <laughs> yeah. I don't think that was about the art of being a barber. <laughs> no, no. Um, yeah, I think the last one just happened in, in, in back rooms. And anyway, some of them had happy endings. That's what I think. Um, Ooh, I okay, let's move part. swiftly yeah. on. Swiftly, swiftly, swiftly. The midnight run has been to Barcelona, Madrid, London, Auckland Park and Florence. Which African city do you see this happening? Um, honestly, um, Johannesburg. Okay. Joburg or Cape Town. I'm trying to make that happen for the last few years. Um, I keep on failing, but I'm still going to make it happen. But yeah, definitely <laughs> Joburg first. First, yeah. And of course, we started the interview off with a very important question asking you about these superheroes that were at your play. We need to close it off with an equally important question that I think is just, it's just life changing. Did you ever get the girl that you started playing basketball for? Um, oh, wow, you can't do your research. Um, let me see. We kissed once, that was it. Uh, so, did you, so in your yeah. opinion, is that a yes or no, or was it like a. Um, well, okay, maybe a small yes. A small like a yes. Yes, yeah. You see, dreams do come true. Dreams do come true. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much for spending time with us on Africa State of Mind. And because you're a poet, no you need to wrap it up and just define in your mind how you see Africa State of Mind in a poetic way, please. Because I'm Ugandan, I'm crazy. I will oh, call you out. Man. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Otherwise, we're going to know that you have a ghostwriter. <laughs> An African state of mind is the underlinings of humanity. It is the sediment. It is what grounds us and from what we germinate. That's what I think. Oh, awesome. Thank you so much. Enjoy the rest of your day. You're welcome. <laughs> okay. Thank you very much. Bye. Bye. And that's how we come to the end of this episode of Africa State of Mind. I really hope that you enjoy listening to this podcast in the same way that we really enjoy putting it together. And if you have any ideas of any guests that you feel we should be profiling who are from Africa and who are changing the narrative, please hit us up on Twitter at Africa State Mind. You can also um, send us messages on the Facebook group, which is Africa State of Mind. And don't forget to rate us and let us know how it is that we're doing. And be sure to share and tell your friends about the movement africa state of mind with lee kasumba we'll be back next week with another great episode africa state of mind with lee kasumba get it on itunes now